This is a true story. The events depicted in this podcast took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Fargo is next. Everybody, welcome in to episode eight of the Movie Goats podcast. John Moyer, as always, joined by Brady and Brian. And today we have the 1996 classic from the Cohen brothers, Fargo. Got a lot to talk about. I wish I was in Fargo right now because I have zero AC in the middle of summer in the South. If I pass out during the podcast, that is why. But first, as always, we got to check in with the fellas. Brian, how's it going? Not bad, man. Not bad. Um, pretty interesting weekend, I guess. I uh, My car battery died, so I had to deal with that. That was fun. Put new rocks down back on the new river rocks back on the patio behind my house, which was fun. A lot of, a lot of kind of work, but then also played some golf. A little frustrating, though. Got to... Got to the golf course and went to the range and literally like the second swing, I hurt my back. So I like played a whole round with a hurt back. It was a, it was an interesting weekend, some ups, some downs. Um, but overall, uh, pretty good. Watched Fargo uh, with my wife. Absolutely loved it. I was a little nervous making this pick. And then when I got about halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, yes, this is as good as I remembered it. And I'm excited to talk about it. As Marge Gunderson can attest, never fun to have your car battery die. Yeah, Prowler needs a jump. (laughs) Brady, what's up with you, my man? How you been? Um, I I had a pretty good weekend, pretty great weekend. Went uh, was at a wedding, went bozo mode, but we also had a huge W for the boys. Um, because I had uh my 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 buddy, he moved into a apartment complex near the house we that that I live at. And that means we got a summer pool access, but the thing is, they're not—they're not really that lenient about uh, who's allowed to go to that pool. So we kind of have to go incognito, try to stay in the corner. My roommate will try to bring out the speakers. I'm like, dude, we got to go low key. Don't don't play the tunes. We're just trying to—we're trying to blend in. Um, obviously, I've been working on my tan, as been noted in other podcasts. So I think I do fit in pretty well in the scene. But uh, I think it's going to make for a big summer. I'm really excited, especially with July coming around, that I think big things are ahead for the fellas. I'm really I'm really feeling confident in that. Definitely was going to just ask if you're still on your regimen. Uh, you know, you got to have that set if you're if you're going to be going to the pool. Oh, 100 percent. I actually at the wedding, somebody commented. I thought I was bronze. I was feeling really good about that because obviously I got an extra session before the wedding. You never know what's going to happen. And um, I was also looking for some headshots i had uh my brother i said you gotta take some photos i don't really get in a suit that often i haven't i i don't have a headshot from me like less than 10 years old and so uh, you know now that iphones have portrait mode i said let's do it let's rock and um somebody passed by and they said you look too sunburned to use that as a professional photo and that kind of bummed me out because i am uh handicapped in the sense that i'm colorblind and i i can't tell when i'm sunburned and when i'm tan and i thought i looked like a bronze god and apparently I did not. I looked. I looked a little burnt. But you know, you take you, you 
you, you deal with the hand that you're dealt. And I think I'm taking it as a W. The pictures will be used in the future for professional purposes. Feeling good about it. We're walking away from the weekend with multiple W's on our shoulders. You don't have to get into it specifics, you know, if you don't want to, but wedding, let's rank the spread one to 10. Uh, and what was, what was getting you out on the dance floor? Well, I'm going to, uh, I, I don't know if this is politique. I got to say 10, obviously. I don't know who, you never know who's going to listen. I'm, uh, I'll keep it close. My best. It was actually pretty great. Uh, really, re- really enjoyed the, uh, entree. I got the, I got the beef. Um, that, that was good. It had a little sauce on it, a little action on that. Um, when it came to the dance floor, it actually what kind of blew my mind near the end is they did a, uh, late nineties, early two thousands medley to close us out. Um, that you know, rocks. playing the hits, people singing, people yelling, you know, it was rock. It was tunes like that. Um, but they were switching it up. There's DJs that would take over when the band took a break, the band really brought the juice. And it was one of those bands that had like 12 people. I don't know how that makes sense financially for the band when you got to split it 12 <laughs> ways, but you know, if that's what they do, that's what they do. I think they made it work. Everyone was dancing a lot of high fives on the dance floor, which is a true test of a good wedding. And we got, I, I had at least 10 plus high fives by the end of the uh, end of the night. And uh, I think I good things ahead for the couple. They, they drove off into the sunset. Well, it was already dark at that point, but I feel like great wedding, great vibes, um, great people, great times. Speaking of great people, great times. We've got the Midwestern classic here. Great people. Fargo. Uh, Brian, your pick. My first time uh watching it very impressed tell me about uh how many times have you seen fargo i know that you're a big cohen brothers guy where does this rank for you Ooh, that's a that's a tough question right off the bat um kind of a loaded question when you asked me to to rank the cohen brothers films i would say fargo is uh probably at the top right there with a serious man and then i also have to say a big lebowski so hard for me to rank those three because they're all very different movies. But um, those are, I mean, those are my top three Coen Brothers films. Sorry, No Country for Old Men, great movie, but I think uh, those three take the cake for me. Um, in terms of like what this movie means to me, I, I don't know. I feel like when it came out in '96, it was in a way like a cultural phenomenon. It kind of introduced a lot of America to this midwestern kind of style of living and the accents and also in a way i think almost introduced like a new genre of film in a way um in this black comedy this dark comedy kind of approach that sure people had done before but i feel like fargo is maybe kind of redefined what it meant um so for me it was like i remember in 96 this movie having an like a social impact and my grandfather was really into movies. I remember the the latest movie he had in his VHS collection was Fargo. That was like the last movie that he purchased because he watched all these movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s. And then Fargo was the was the most recent one he had. And I always loved that so much. So he loved it as well. And so I've probably seen it, I don't know, 20, 30 times. It's definitely one of my favorite movies. That's awesome. And so little uh treat for the listeners at home we got a um a historian on our hands our good friend t-pat is a history professor has access to a bunch of historical documents but um 
some of those being pretty much every newspaper article of all time. And so he went out and he did a little research on some Fargo reviews. Uh, specifically, he sent me some some from the L.A. Times, New York Times, and one from a local Minnesota paper. And Brady, I got to get your thoughts on this. The New York Times called Fargo a deadly plot with a milk toast villain. They said that William H. Macy was milk toast in this. Thoughts about that? Do you know? Do you have who uh, did the review? Uh, yes, Janet Maslin. Yeah, I'm not usually in line with her too often, but <laughs> I, I, um, I think that's interesting because to take a step back to view him, obviously he's. He's, uh, I guess, the villain, but there's no traditional really villain in this piece, which I think is what makes it almost they were almost they were creating a new trend almost in the sense that, yeah, there is no like mustache twirling villain. He is a milk t- like he's not a threat per se, um, but he is doing all the worst things. I mean, obviously, Buscemi uh, aside and all that, um, but. I think, yeah, that that's I, I think whenever you're doing something that's innovative like that and people are putting just a historical framework on your movie, that's in, that's like will lead to people thinking that you made a misstep when you were honestly being a, a trailblazer. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I don't agree with that review, <laughs> but, but it's funny because I th- this is probably the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw. Unless I saw Lebowski earlier, but I don't think I did. I think it was Fargo because this was like for the long time. This was the the one that everyone raised up as the best uh, Coen Brothers movies until probably after No Country came out. People started, you know, things that honestly then the Internet happened and people had more diverse opinions on these things. But I think it was it's funny. I, I would say this is my fourth or fifth favorite Coen Brothers movie. But it's also one of the ones I end up watching the most. So I think maybe I underrate it myself when I think about it, especially when I was rewatching it this time around, because it had been a minute since I'd watched it so often before I kind of had taken a break, especially with the TV show that happened and things like that. And my take is I know Brian texted us this. He thought he 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 made a comment that he this was like almost creating a new genre in the way it used humor and the dark horror of it. Um and I think it is what maybe I don't didn't have the context of when I watched it when I was younger. Just this is my first like Coen Brothers movie is how different it was compared to a lot of movies historically that had come before. And then you see a lot of imitators the same way that like Tarantino drops Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. And there's a lot of imitators. I feel like after Fargo, there's been a whole genre subgenre of people trying to imitate this, but with diminishing returns. I don't, I think they are the best at it. And I don't even know if they could do it again, because clearly obviously the Coen brothers have split up. They're doing movies separately now. And it seems that one is very into humor. One's still into the darkness and together they're able to create something wholly unique. And I think that's what sets this apart from a lot of movies, even movies in there and their filmography that they did. So I don't know. I don't long story short. I don't agree with Janet Maslin. Well, quick. Yeah, go for it. All right. Quick thing on the reviews, because I, I did 
Thanks. First, first of all, thanks, T-Pat, for the, for the research. Much appreciated. I did read through some of like, the older reviews on this movie, and it's interesting. There's like a theme throughout the reviews where everybody finds this movie very quirky. And it's funny because I watch it now, and I'm like, uh, it's a little quirky, but I don't think it's like an oddball movie at all. I, I think it, you know, it's a, it's what I consider a, a black comedy, a dark comedy now. And there's no like weird twists and twer- turns in this movie. I mean, um, it's kind of like they, they lay it out for you, the plot, and it's pretty straightforward. I, I really don't find it quirky the way that a lot of people do. And the other thing I read a lot is about how people said, don't watch it if you have like uh, a, a queasy stomach or something like that because it was gory in a way. I mean, obviously the wood chipper scene, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but I like, it's funny. Like, I just feel like those reviews didn't age that well because I feel like I've seen so many movies now that use similar humor and use similar violence um, that I don't find this movie that quirky or I guess gory or anything like that anymore. Maybe it was in 96 when it came out, but not so much now. I think what differentiates like what you're talking about and like nowadays you see a lot of movies with that dark edgy sort of humor is that this I, I think this does have like a weird you know obviously quirky sense of humor to some extent but they keep it grounded like there's a level where the characters seem like there's there's something very very vis- they don't feel like cartoon characters like the specificity of, of the grandfather watching Wade when he's watching the gophers on the TV that like that that when you see stuff like that he's into hockey and then that that just like that just adds an interiority to him as opposed to an over-the-top joke of a character and i feel like each character gets that care to the point which kind of saves the movie from making fun of the characters which i think a lesser filmmakers would maybe it would be like looking down on these people as opposed to meeting them at their own level yeah i'm uh i'm glad you brought that up brady um watching the gophers that was literally maybe the funniest part of the movie for me just the fact that it's 96 95 and and this guy's got the the minnesota golden gopher hockey game on tv and our last thing that i'll say about um about these reviews is the minnesota the minnesota star had a review titled yeah sure you betcha fargo pokes fun at all and basically, it's just like Minnesotans might be offended by Fargo, but if you don't take yourself too seriously, it's a pretty good flick. And of course, they're just being Minnesota nice. They gave it four and a half out of five stars. So I love that. And I mean, if it's not too early to bring it out, I'll bring it out now. Uh, Grandpa, father-in-law watching the, the Gophers. That's my Pacino switcherino. <laughs> Just the, the 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 grandpa character in general. Yeah, yeah. Like I think that that guy was really good in the role, but I, I could see Pacino leveling it up a little bit and giving uh, Macy the business. Well, keeping <laughs> in mind the Al Pacino switcherino, the rules are you got to take him as the age he was when they made it. So that means you want him old age, old age makeup, which I'm not saying is not is a non-starter. You want Pacino getting the dyed white hair, getting a little jowls put on him. You think it could play? I think that he, at this point in his career, probably through the partying and whatnot, had some weatherness to him that he didn't look that much 
Oh, come it on. You saw the, this is the insider. We're talking the insider era. He's still a baller. He's a hunk. He's walking in. He's got the beautiful suntan. I think he could have pulled off 20 years older than Macy. If anybody can play a role that's like 30 years older than himself, it's Pacino. Yeah. And he's done it. And he's done that too. Uh, <laughs> shout out to Joe Paul. Um, I, I will say, I think I was, so when I was trying to decide who's the perfect Al Pacino switcherino, and I didn't want to fall into the trap of every time I'm just picking a small side character because I didn't have the balls, dare I say, to pick one of the heavy hitters. And I, I'm going to go for it. You're going to say I'm crazy. Because remember, I'm not, we don't lose this version of Fargo. It's just, I would like to see this version of Fargo. William H. Macy, step to the side. Al Pacino, going for it. He can play a loser. You saw Donnie Brasco. He yeah. knows how to play losers. Can he play that much of a loser? Like Macy, I know that you guys love these two movies too. But I, like this performance reminded me a little bit of him in Magnolia and yeah. a little bit of him in Boogie Nights. Macy's so great at playing this guy who's just down on his luck. I feel like Pacino's too cool. Well, I'm not saying it would be a different movie. Yeah. But I'm saying take this walk with me when he's like, ah, oh, you betcha. I don't know. I didn't, I, I've lost my ability to do a Pacino impression that I feel like I was better at in early episodes. But I could see, like, and also keeping in mind, we know he's not changing the voice. He's not putting on a Minnesota accent. So he'll be a little bit of an outlier with the rest of the cast. But. If he was playing Al Pacino as Jerry Lundegaard, <laughs> that movie, and because I I don't know, Pacino and the Coens, Match Made in Heaven, I feel like not the worst movie. I, people, I, I think if your gut, my gut reaction is like, no, that couldn't work. But then when I think about it, I think Pacino, it would be a different movie for sure. But I could see it playing. I want to see him in the parka, scraping the ice off the car. It's like insomnia vibes kind of things going on. I think I think it could work. I'm not saying it's a better movie. I'm just saying I think it could work. I'd so, like to see it. For those tuning in for the first time, because you're probably very confused right now, we do the Pacino switcher, switcherino, which is you take a character from the movie and you you say, which one could Pacino play? So just wanted to say that. I would not change any of these because I think between Francis McDormand, William H. Macy, and Steve Buscemi, the three of them had like career-defining performances, and they both were fantastic, all of them. Obviously, you can't put Pacino in Francis McDormand's role, but the one that I would maybe change would be Steve Buscemi. I think he very well could have played Carl Showalter as Buscemi in this movie. I think it could have played very well. That, I yeah, think he would I play. I think his humor, his humor works. I think people are underestimating the reason we do the Al Pacino switcherino is is there a greater chameleon? I don't think there could possibly. Oh, but Christian Bale, he can he can take on any role. He adds weight. He gains weight. He loses his hair. He gains hair. Sure, Pacino. He always looks exactly the same. Has the same hair going. <laughs> but he and he his voice is always the same too. But. He always plays in every movie he's been in. You can't, uh, people, I I would love, name one movie that wasn't better because Pacino was in it. He always adds a little juice. I mean, like, if I was going to go side character, maybe Norm Gunderson, he's just playing a little sweetheart. Uh, hubby, you know, he's making the eggs. 
Like, but even then, like, yeah, we, we just give him the male pattern, pattern baldness. I don't know if I've seen Pacino rock that before. That could be an interesting look, even though at that height of the game, his hair was, was peaking in a way. I mean, this is heat era. So like, you don't want to take that hair from him, but I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm sticking to my guns. Cause again, I'm not saying it would be a better movie. I'm saying this is the movie I want to see. You <laughs> son of a Gunderson. Also, William H. Macy during casting was like, you guys are giving me this role. And apparently he like really put himself out there. So the Coen brothers was like, you have to give me this role. This was made for me. This is my role, which is amazing. And he, I love that. he aced it. Yeah, he did. I, uh, I, I really enjoyed the acting in this movie. Um, do you guys want to talk a little of any of the other characters, any of the other actors, actresses, or should we get into it and uh, talk about them as we go? I think we talk as we go with this one. I feel like they're all introduced nicely. They are. Yeah, they all have like their intro scene. All right. So Brady, kick us off. Oh, first okay. off, just. Oh, yeah. I was very confused right. when the movie was called Fargo and the very first thing was about Minnesota. Oh, oh yeah. And also this, since you're the one that hadn't seen it, when they did the based on the true story uh, famous, you know, opening text. Did you have any idea that it wasn't a true story? I thought it was probably not a true story, but I mean, I definitely looked it up. Like I'm saying, I'm not saying like when the movie was over. Like when you saw it at the opening of the of the movie, were you like, oh, because why would you think otherwise? I think I had heard that it wasn't, yeah. but I, like it was in okay. the back of my mind, like that that it's not. But I mean, definitely, yeah, it's piqued my interest. Well, because yeah, that's the. I guess that's I mean that's our first discussion point because that's a, that was a major thing and obviously a controversy when it happened back at the time. I think it's a little stroke of genius on their part because I think the funny thing is whenever you see a movie based on a true story, there's nothing there's no inherently there's no movie that's based on a true story because inherently you're gonna contract timelines combine like you don't know what somebody said in the room when no one else is there you know things like that and it's uh, I I don't know they're clearly making a comment on it and it also inherently makes it more interesting. And you started, I think there became like an, like an, uh, there's a period of movies about like five years ago where it kind of peaked where every movie just said like inspired by a true story. That's the worst inspired by a true story means no, this has nothing to do with it. We like read a sentence and then just wrote a movie off it. And they're just trying to make it seem bigger than it is. Cause I think it does change your mindset a little bit when you are watching a movie thinking it's a true story. And I think that was a clever part on their part. It's like, we're just going to, it's all bullshit, bullshit anyways. Let's see what happens when we put your mindset this way and then have like all these outrageous things happen and you're just convinced it's true. Yeah, I mean, you call it a stroke of genius. And I feel like it was there for the taking for like anybody to do for so many years. And it's surprising because you're like, this is the first time I've seen a movie that said something like that and then it's just not it's just totally fabricated and you can't do it again so yeah it, do you guys think that they do you guys think that they took it from vonnegut slaughterhouse five opening line all of this happened more or less no because that's a different thing that's its own level of genius that's the the more or less that's that that you could put me down a, a rabbit hole i could do a whole podcast on that sentence why that's like one of the great <laughs> opening sentences of all time Quick, quick that, thing. I mean, I don't know if we need to get into like the, all the thematics here, but this this 
true story bit in the beginning is a theme in this movie though. I mean, deception is a big part of this movie where they say this is based on a true story. And then you find out, well, after you do some research that it's actually not a true story, but in many cases, these characters are lying and they're very believable. I mean, Jerry Lundegaard seems like a harmless, nice car salesman, but he's ripping off customers. He literally got his wife kidnapped on purpose. And then also, I mean, they, the classic one is like, people often see this movie and they're like, what was the point of the Mikey Yanagita scene where Frances McDormand uh, goes on the date with this guy that she apparently had like an old fling with and it makes no sense. And, you know, but then you later find out when she's on the phone with her friend that he was lying. He was not married to Linda Cooksey and all this. So there's a lot of deception in this movie. And actually, John, you mentioned the title as well. The title is kind of deceiving too. If you want to add that to the list of deception for a movie that again, like there's not really twists and turns. It more so just lays the plot out in front of you. And it tells you the story as to what happened. There is so much deception in this movie. And I feel like one of the themes is definitely like the most innocent seeming people are often lying and they can be dangerous people. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's, yeah, there's something to that. I mean, and and when it, yeah, we'll, we'll get to the, 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 the date scene and what the the ramifications of it and all that when we get to it. Cause I think that's almost like the key to the movie, if you will. Yeah. Um, But yes. Ahead, start out with some dangerous people right macy meets uh yeah, yeah. so we meet we meet uh the characters are jerry lundergaard william h macy carl showalter played by steve buscemi and gare grimsrud by peter <laughs> stormare um and the reason i just had to drop names is just because i think an underrated skill some people have and some people don't is just creating incredible characters names yeah this is just name after name just money um and it's just, but it's simple. They open up with that one. I thought when I'm watching it, they, is it called like the, the Knight of Cups or something? The, the bar they're at? I assumed it was like a fake sign. And then apparently that was a real bar, which is, I so think cool. the King of Clubs. The King of Clubs. Yeah. Such a cool bar. Um, and then so Jerry shows up with the keys of the car. They have the great little opening dialogue where he's like, oh, you, Shep Proudfoot said you'd be here by 7 30. It's 8 30. All the nonsense. And then basically it's revealed um i have a car i'm gonna pay you with a with a uh oldsmobile cutlass sierra and you will kidnap my wife at which point you will be paid they're splitting eighty thousand dollars i think that's what they believe the deal is and and then buscemi's just like okay also it's incredible because um storm air never says a word until like maybe the third scene we've seen him with. So he just kind of sits quiet. And then I guess he says one thing at the end of the scene, but they're confused. He said, I want you to kidnap my wife and we'll pay you all this money. It's one of the great ideas about a crime. Cause he says he won't, he won't get either. Like, why do you want to kidnap your wife? And he's like, I'm not going to tell you why that's my business. And Buscemi almost presses him. And then he's like, you know what? Show us this year. Then we cut to his home life, which now we got to have Scotty corner because I think Scotty is one of the great Coen brother characters. <laughs> I know that you're like, always talk about making a little Lebowski sequel. I want to, I want a sequel with Scotty grown up. <laughs> Just <laughs> He had some incredible sweaters. Really I, good sweaters. I feel like Scotty got recruited to play D1 hockey, but he like gets thrown off the team. Like 
right when he gets to campus. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> Except he didn't miss that year of hockey because his grades were bad, I guess, uh, in the movie. What do you yeah. guys think about that punishment? Is it a just punishment? Are you guys just pro extracurricular activities, ride or die? No, I think if your kid's not holding up the, the end of the bargain with doing their homework and getting good grades, that you you should take away extracurriculars as a maybe as a first step if you have to. Devil's advocate. I'm, hear uh, me out. What if Scotty isn't that smart? I'm not saying I'm not saying he's not, but what if he isn't? His only hope is to go D one, play for the Gophers. So I, I'm gonna say you encourage him to join a different club and take that away and let him keep playing hockey. There. I mean, yeah, this that, is I like that strategy. Man. I think that, that's the Min- long con. This is like Texas football. This is Minnesota hockey, man. You got to let the kid yeah. play if he's good. Make the kid fall in love with chess club and take the chess club away because there's not much money in chess club. I was in chess club. Um, shockingly, wasn't great at it. But that's neither here nor there. Um, so I, I think in that in the opening scene, Wade's there. The grandfather's there, right? Is that when they're having dinner? Yeah. And he's like, and this is a thing. All right. I, I feel like I missed out on a great moment in time to be a kid when Scotty excuses himself from the table so he can go to McDonald's. And the mom's like, he's just going to hang out with his friends. <laughs> and I'm like, I wish I could have hung out with my friends at McDonald's late night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like the right after he eats dinner too. If you pay attention to, to the what they're eating, they're eating burgers for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that that along with um the other thing that we we passed over really quickly um was peter stormare the way he smokes cigarettes he like cups it um i've never Reverse. seen anyone smoke a cigarette like that before but those two little details that they worked into the first couple scenes i thought were amazing yeah I love the just absolutely love the dialogue in this movie and I'm I'm going to gush over it throughout this whole podcast but in that opening scene when Carl Showalter played by Steve Buscemi says he like doesn't get it he's not he's not understanding like why he would want to kidnap his wife and he's like it's like robbing Peter to pay Paul it makes no sense I like I love that line so much yeah I think it's funny too, yeah, because like even Wade has those great lines, like the subtle digs. Because I guess this is kind of the time where they reveal his motivation, where he's like, "Hey, I got, I had that deal about the he wants, Jerry wants to create a, a parking lot, it's <laughs> a great that. deal." And then he's like, oh, and he's like, "Oh, you should talk to our money man." And he's like, "No, I want to talk to you, um, because his job's to tell you no." And he says, "He's like, I, he's like, uh, we need me and Scotty. What, what's the wife's name?" Is it Gene? Yeah, Gene yeah, and Scotty uh, would really uh, we we could use use the money, and then the grandfather's is simple. Gene and Scotty will always be fine. Yeah, <laughs> the That's greatest, so most but cutting like, thing you really, can ever say to a man. It's really smart though because it just cemented the fact that he's kidnapping his wife for a reason. Because the the grandpa will or the the father in law will always pay for the wife, but it'll never help him out. So like. It does. It's really smart in that way that it just immediately solidifies like, OK, this guy's a psychopath for trying to 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 kidnap his own wife. But we see the motivation. Yeah. And clearly he like no, like so obviously Jerry's in some financial troubles. Um, do they ever specifically say why he's like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt? 
I think it, they don't really specifically say it, but they give some clues. Like it seems like something's going on at the dealership where I, I don't know if he's like doing something shady with the financials there. I feel like there was a slight clue to that throughout the movie. Was that have to do with the, I, I thought that had to do with giving away the Sierra. Yeah, that's part of it, but okay. there's like another like slight clue that I think even during like the next scene when he's ripping off the customer for the yeah, but that true coat, I think like I, I need to rewatch again, obviously, but I I do think there's like some slight hints as to what's going on. He's doing something shady financially. Yeah, and then it's funny too because then he finally does get the meeting with who's the other great the name Grossman. Of the- Stan Grossman. Stan, Stan Grossman. Grossman. Stan Grossman, whose job is to say no. Stan Grossman's like, ah, when they when he tells him, Wade's like, yeah, Stan looked at the numbers and they and they really look good. So what should your finders fee be? And that's when you realize how bozo Jerry is, because he's like, no, I just wanted a, a loan. He's yeah. like, why would they give him so much money? The I best guess- part, I think the most amazing part of that scene is when He's essentially saying like, well, okay, what's your fee? That's the only thing we didn't talk about. He's like, finder's fee. No, this is my deal here. And that whole conversation. And then William H. Macy goes down and he like, he takes it from his soul and he goes, okay, I guarantee you your money back. And it's like (laughs) the most classic car salesman, like delivery. And like, you could tell it like really meant something to Jerry to say, I guarantee you your money back. And they like, obviously his, father-in-law and Stan Grossman just like kind of laugh at him yeah because like we're not a bank yeah like when you say it like he needs to directly ask his father father-in-law for a loan and frame it that way the idea that he went through Stan and expected the the company just to give a private loan out (laughs) to him it doesn't make any sense like it's clearly he's not that sharp during the conversation, Stan Grossman and the father-in-law, they're like arguing over where this like Bill Deal guy is working now. He's like, he's at Northwest Federal. He's like, no, he's, it's so funny that like, they really don't care about Jerry at all making money on this. They're like, I don't oh, know. And then it's Jerry so funny at the end of it. The yeah. finder's fee. That, that always <laughs> bothered me. He's like, oh, what? Yeah. And up- then at the end, they're like, well, we don't want any sore feelings. So you don't feel bad if we go ahead with this anyways. <laughs> <laughs> well, two points, two points. First off, I love how they keep calling the deal. These are like old men. They keep saying it's a sweet deal. Yeah. Like, oh, this deal's sweet. Uh, but also, yeah. So if I am remembering correctly, it was three quarters of a million, three quarters of a billion, 750 750,000. 750,000. So his finder's fee would be 75,000, which is more than he's getting for kidnapping his wife. No, no, no. He he asked for a million dollars. He told the kidnappers those 80,000. That's why he doesn't want them to pick up the money. Got it. His whole plan is he's lying to them Got and going to pocket like 800 <laughs> 920,000. He's a total piece of shit. All right. <laughs> But um, that's what's funny, because then we cut to, speaking of the kidnappers, we cut to them driving up um, on their way through the Twin Cities. And th- this is probably my favorite moment of humor, is Buscemi's just going off and on. He's like, you, just, you don't really talk much, do you? And then he's like smoking inside the car. And then finally, he's like, you know what? I don't have to talk either. I'm not going to say a single word. Nope. Don't need to talk. I have no problem. See how you like it. Like, <laughs> that just gets me every time. <laughs> and, and, and they end up fading out with him still talking. Yeah. As it goes. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And then, so then we get very soon after we get to the actual kidnapping, which I think this is when you talk about like, you could do this scene in a way that it's a straight horror movie, but it's also like really funny. Like for instance, when she has like the shower curtain on her head and she like runs into a wall and she falls down the stairs and it's like so over the top and like, but it's like harrowing at the same time. Like what's more frightening than watching TV turn into your left and seeing a man in a ski mask with a crowbar. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was like to, to a degree when they yanked the phone out of her hand and, you know, pull it back towards the wall. And then Buscemi's going at the door with the crowbar. I mean, that's straight out of the shining. Yeah. Like, you know, it's supposed to be terrifying. And then it just turns into like actual comedy. Also to the idea like Stormare's like, I need like antibiotic cream yeah. <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> what is that even called? It's called like Anwit or I don't even know what he's saying. That's an old brand. I feel like that had to be like an old brand that was just yeah. ubiquitous that just got lost to the sands of time. It plays plays way better than saying like Neosporin. I need Neosporin, I guess. But yeah, but it's, it's suspenseful too, though. Like it's, you know, it's kind of funny. And I mean, it's sad whenever you see somebody like <laughs> falling down the stairs and struggling and all that. But this, for a moment, you think she's going to go away. They keep yeah, on like, yeah. That was pretty brilliant of her to open the window and then hide in the shower because who throughout their entire life has not thought about is somebody hiding behind the shower curtain like as a kid like you always think that and it's just like anytime there's a shower curtain scene and the shower curtain somebody's hiding behind it it just it adds suspense to a movie yeah yeah i definitely. think that it's one of those great it's one of the great scenes and then it's even but then it's like they really stick the landing when he comes back uh jerry comes back after the incredible just the, the also we have to just talk about like the way this is shot in the snow snow's never looked better mm -hmm. in a movie i feel like a, an underrated thing is like if you're doing a movie and you set it in the snow you gain a star and i'm talking about on a four scars a four star scale you're getting a full star if you're setting a movie entirely in snow and like just that walk to the through the empty parking lot to getting his car screaming and then going out and having to scrape the ice off the car which i mean you guys live up north I, do, I I live in the South. Do you guys have, regularly have to scrape these days? No, obviously not in the summer, but. Yeah, a few. I would, yeah, I mean, there's like a period of time, like a month long, where it's like almost every day you got to scrape. But normally, at least around here, by midday, it, it it's melted and you don't have to worry about it. But if you're leaving in the morning, you got to scrape. Yeah. I think when I was a kid, I used to, on the, yeah, for school, we'd wake up so early at like 630. We always had to scrape, even in Atlanta. Now I don't, I don't, I sleep in a little later, to be honest. I didn't know you were such a snow movie guy. I feel like, is your favorite movie ever, like, The Gray by, with Liam Neeson? That's probably Liam Neeson's, that's Liam Neeson's best of his action movies, without question. Wow. Yeah, that's like a masterpiece, I think. But, I think, it that, yeah. That's a masterpiece. Leo's Oscar definitely should have been The Revenant. That's not my favorite snow movie. I'll leave that. I'll <laughs> I, love leave the that. I think the Revenant is fantastic. I think the Revenant is uh, it's it is it was shot in the snow, um, <laughs> but, but so he gets home. He gets home. This and, scene, this scene rocks. Yeah, so good because they do anytime you do that the the, the trick where he's calling. You hear him on the phone. And he's off camera, and then they show that he's been practicing. <laughs> and then he's just like oh gee golly they took her oh oh man <laughs> and he's like trying like three different ways of saying it 
Yeah, and then he calls and gets the secretary. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wade is Jerry. And then he's like, uh, Wade Gustafson, please. It's so good. I think it's like, because it's almost the idea. Do you think, how about this? Do you guys think it's a sound plan? I think it's very well written for a movie. I think it's very high risk. <laughs> I think here, yeah, here's the mistake he made. And not 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 to be like getting to the mind of a criminal. If you're gonna hire someone to kidnap a family member, you should one know who they are. It can't just be strangers that shit Proudfoot vouch for. Yeah, it's working the mechanic at your dealership. Yeah. Well, because we forgot, I, I forgot, but the, the the scene, the first thing we see shit Proudfoot is because Jerry gets the phone call about they want to talk about the deal because because it, it looks like a pretty sweet deal. So then he goes to Shep to tell them, "Hey, call off the kidnapping." Hey. This is a great like old school thing where there's no way to contact these people once the the plan has been implemented. Yeah. And then I just love Shep. I was like, "I didn't vouch." He's like, "There was two guys. I only vouched for one." <laughs> like that's that's a great line. And he's like, "Oh, they, they seem like nice guys and all, but like, can we like?" stop them from kidnapping my wife and then he like forgets about it i think he's surprised when he gets home and the kidnapping's happened he's like oh. i feel yeah. like a quick shout out to the cinematographer too i the corn brothers i always use roger deakins i guess that's like their guy but that scene where he is scraping the ice off his car and they do the overhead shot and it's just all snow brady you must have been like this is <laughs> this is the oh. apex of film right here the way that this is shot all the snow it's just perfect i feel like will you admit snow snow is a huge production value i'll i'll give you a little insight in my mind there's the two my two favorite things in movies as far as will inherently increase your production value thousands of extras they don't do it anymore because now they cgi and it's not the same if you watch a movie like a lawrence of arabia where ten thousand people are just riding horses and running around that's the coolest thing. That's cooler than any special effect, period. And then snow and lots of it. You give me those elements, then you've, you're have you already there. You're already at three and a half stars. You're already at one of the goat levels. That's before we've even touched the script. I'm going to add a third. I'm going to add a third one to your list on behalf of everybody on this podcast that has a beach football scene. Yes, there you any go. Any athletics on the beach, any athletics on the beach, a sporting <laughs> event, because I'm going to throw volleyball in there. And then yeah. the fourth is Al Pacino. That's the Rushmore <laughs> of things that make your movie a masterpiece. If you have two out of those four, you're getting one of the GOAT statuses, <laughs> most likely. I can't guarantee it, but most likely. <laughs> but so after that, they um, – where were we at? He talked to Ship Proudfoot, which also shout out to that guy's performance of Ship Proudfoot. But he, <sighs> he reports to his, uh, his father-in-law – and I love that Stan Grossman is like still like the contact in this. They like sit down and he's like, they want a million dollars. I have to be the guy. And he does. This is when Macy does a pretty great performance where he's just like playing that. Well, they, 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 they seem real nervous. They, they, they only, they only talk to me. I'm the only guy they'll talk to. And then Stan Grossman's like, Oh, I kind of agree with uh, Jerry here. And Wade's like, I'm sorry. I don't know. I mean, this was really good. And, it on it honestly it goes into i think it flows into the scene where everything changed for me because you know you see the the like blundering kidnapping and you're like all right are these guys these guys aren't professionals like this this is a joke and like the half-baked plan by jerry that i admittedly i was like yeah this probably could work but it's so stupid also and like 
all that. And I'm laughing the whole time. And we get to that scene where they get pulled over and he shoots the cop, then the two kids. And I'm like, Oh my God. That oh, we got to give a little bit more than that. A hand wave of that. That, that scene's probably one of the best like thriller set pieces, I think of the nineties, yeah. maybe. That's what I'm saying though. But I think it did completely change the tone of the movie and it like woke me up almost. Well, I think it because it's so yeah. clever. She's just in the back seat, and that and that's when you, that's one of those real frightening moments because you have that moment where you kind of like relate with her, and you're like, that would probably be like the worst feeling imaginable, right? Because you don't know what these guys are doing. She's just an everyday like housewife. She doesn't. There's no context for her to understand what's happening to her, and they're just telling her like, shut up or we'll kill you. And then okay. the moment the police splice go, and then Buscemi. This is probably maybe Buscemi's highlight in it for me. When he's like the the cop walks up and he's like license and registration and he puts like the fifty dollar bill like up in his wallet. We'd really like to take care of this in Brainerd. Uh, <laughs> and the guy's like, and they do a great job of not showing the cop's face until he finally leans forward with the flashlight, yeah. looks in, and then that incredible special effect of whatever they did where uh, Stormare shoots him at the top of the head and the blood just splashes all over Buscemi. And then you're just like, oh, things have turned south very quickly for these fellas. Yeah. And then they have he's like, Buscemi, go take him, take care of him. And then just the genius of them drive those teens driving up, slow motion, rubbernecking at them. And then that's a great car chase because I feel like I don't like occasionally I'll drive in a place without like street lights, somewhere isolated. And then you realize like it's a different level of darkness. And I gotta imagine out in Minnesota. <laughs> That, that's gonna be like because all you can see is the red brake lights Rainer. and then they just and then, and then they crash i like how they don't cause it they just crash on their own and yeah. that's when you see the guy's like cutthroat you know the guy's stuck in the car shoots him shoots him buscemi is all disheveled he has to go pick him up and it, i think this is how where we get introduced to okay Mark. okay you're you guys are flying through this. I gotta say a few things about this scene before we get okay. to. Okay, I'm fine. I'm fine hanging out in this scene. This is, I, think, <laughs> I, had a, I had a question for you guys too, but you go ahead. So again, I just gotta say one thing. I think we're all like eager to talk about this part. So I gotta say one thing. When I think maybe my favorite line in the whole movie is when she's in the back seat and she's like shrieking when they get pulled over. It's the what. Steve Buscemi says he's like just uh keep it quiet back there lady or uh we're gonna have to you know shoot you <laughs> the way that he delivered <laughs> is so good oh man but uh yeah and then moving forward I guess when that car chase happens you see the two innocent bystanders driving by so this was what blew my mind and actually shout out to one of my buddies Justin who listens to all of our episodes. He, you know, provides feedback. He's a legend. He may be a guest on this at some point. Absolute legend. I remember I I showed him this movie. He had never seen it. And we finished the movie up and we're watching and we're, we're watching the credits. And then all of a sudden we see innocent bystander and in the credits and it's literally Prince's symbol. It's not a, the person's name. It is Prince's symbol, which Wait, the artist formerly known as Prince? Yes. <laughs> as the yeah. as the guy in the red coat? Yes. Yes. It's no over. way. Yeah. So I, I've done some research on it. I guess it's it it's like identical to Prince's symbol. I guess the guy in the red coat was like he was I, I can't remember his job. He was like a set director. He was supporting in some way. I don't know. He was on the set 
and he just wound up in this movie and his whole thing, I think he was like an artist or something. I don't know, but his whole thing was like, I don't want to put my name in this, but I'll use this symbol. And the symbol is actually very slightly different than Prince's, I guess. All but right. if you watch the credits and you see it, it's like, dude, when was Prince in this movie? And when I was watching it with my buddy. He pointed that out. I was like, dude, this is incredible. We went down the, this deep rabbit hole of like, <laughs> what is this? I was going to say, I never that's, that. that's not Prince's body type. I'm glad that you uh, <laughs> you cleared that up. But okay, so my question was, this is a, a guy and a girl, right, who get shot. Are they on a date? Are they, um, you know, brother and sister? Either way, you can't just leave the girl in the car like that. Yeah. That news. Also, running into, like, just open field is always a tough, tough Never works for any, any victim. Like, get behind the car, hide, like, fight it out. You know, it's so tough. Yeah, right. that was it. It's in a, but it is also like just an endless field field of snow. There's just something about it. <laughs> There's just something about it. Maybe it's because I grew up in the South. I've always really lived in the South that I have a greater appreciation of snow. <laughs> I mean, we get snow occasionally. Every every year we get usually one snow day. We really load up, make it count. There you go. Um, but so now we get introduced, which is like also really impressive that they wait this long. Because we haven't even mentioned her yet the entire time. Um, Frances McDormand as Marge Gunderson. Um, she won Best Supporting Actress for this one. Well-deserved. Um, I'm going to yeah. say, like, she's probably my MVP. Um, so very happy to hear that. I like that, like, it's a reveal. You don't realize she's, like, pregnant for the first, like, beginning. Because she's, like, sitting up in bed. And then when she, like, stands up and then turns sideways. And you're like, oh, that woman's pregnant. <laughs> like, very pregnant. And I think maybe greatest husband of all time award going to son of a gun norm gunderson <laughs> um he's just like oh she's like oh go back to bed norm um, but she's also like the greatest wife too like picking him up night crawlers and stuff so you can go ahead it's their power couple they're definitely the ideal couple because then she's like no i'll make you eggs gotta get a breakfast margie because you know it's 4 a.m. You know it's so early. <laughs> and then it's even like the, the punctuation of that scene where she's like, they they do the eggs and you see like their routine. She goes off, leaves the house. He's alone eating his eggs and, and his thoughts. And then she comes back in and says, I need a jump. I mean, the, <laughs> the police car that she uses to do her job needs a jump. Like, it's, it's just amazing. Like, she's the hero in this movie. And she's like under resourced. She's like she's pregnant, you know. But she's such an amazing detective and such a hero. Yeah. And is, is, at this point, is this when they established that he paints stamps? Yeah. Uh, no, later on, because I think when they're when he's just chilling in her office and he's taking yeah. a look at the night crawlers and they're eating Arby's. Arby's. That's when you're talking about the the mallards. That well, we got it. So so I don't forget this. Was I crazy? Those weren't curly fries. Did no. they not have the curly fries at that point? What, like, was this a late? I just assumed that was their bit from the jump. No. Like, and did Arby's ever rock the sesame seed bun? Because that was also in play here. That's a good question. I didn't, I don't, I've never noticed that watching this movie. I'm getting, I got us a stat. I got us a stat. And this is actually a crazy, this is a crazy stat. So the curly fries were introduced in 1988. This movie obviously filmed in 95, came out in 96. Oh, that seems strange. Oh, no, wait. This is a period piece. The movie takes place in 1987. 
So was that an active choice? Was the prop the prop <laughs> person just on it that day? And they were like, also, here's a little stat. <laughs> First off, sorry. That wasn't when Arby's that was when curly fries curly fries were created in 1988. Um, and they were introduced to offer a light L-I-T-E, a light version of normal fries. They're oh, the healthy yeah. version. Wow. I like that. Yeah. So, but yeah, it looks like, yeah, yeah. I think the Arby's were there. Curly the fries are way healthier than regular fries, so 100%. For sure. Yeah, yeah the, the curly fries, are that. this is from, I, I the, all those curly fry stats are from the, the official Arby's Wikipedia page. They had all the, yeah. They were in on the curly fries at the, in, in 88, it looked like. Um, so shout out to that. Uh, so we do a, a really quick Arby's corner. Let's yeah. Where, where do you guys stand on Arby's? So right. I'm not like, I'm not the biggest fast food dude in the world. Like I probably, it's been a long time since I had McDonald's or like Burger King or any of that. I'll, I'll, I'll mess around with like the fried chicken joints once in a while, especially if need be. But if I do have to go fast food, Arby's is the play. Like I think that oh, I love it. I think that the roast beef plays like the little uh the pies they got. Like um shout out our good friend and listener, Sam, Sam Gorosh. He got married a few years ago and I had to be up on the road at like 6 a.m. I was in the wedding. I was so hungover. Uh, you know, my buddy was driving. We stopped in an Arby's and I just crushed. And I think that was the last <laughs> time I had Arby's, but I mean that roast beef, man. It plays. I think it's interesting. I th when I look back at Arby's, growing up, I wasn't pumped to go to Arby's. I was like, I want a burger. I don't want this roast beef nonsense. I was a team hater. As I became older and more sophisticated, at least I like to think I became more sophisticated. I also believe Arby's menu became more sophisticated. They started diversifying. They have the subs now. You can get an Italian. You can do a lot of different things on their menu. And I think they were one of the trailblazers when it came to sauces. They have like, they they also, I don't know if they, I haven't, I'll be honest. If I hit this, if I've hit Arby's recently, it was drive through I haven't been inside in a minute. And they were, do, do they still have the pumps? Back in the day, they had little those yeah. little paper Dixie, mini Dixie yeah. cups. I don't know if when I haven't been inside of Wendy's since I can't remember. I usually uh, when I go to Wendy's, I get the drive-through uh, frosty chocolate. Um, but they had the ketchup pumps. Do you think they got rid of those? No, no they, they're they're, the they're in place. So I, I was at an Arby's within a year uh, <laughs> from now, and it was those those were in play. It's good to know. It's good to know they stayed the course because I love the horsey sauce, the spicy Arby sauce. All those things they play on the fries real well. I, I I'll be honest. I'm like I don't want to be like a like a nerd. I don't I don't go there that often. I don't know if there's one near me because I, I I'm in a new spot. I I I haven't I don't know the lay of the land that that well, but I think it's not the best. I'm not going to go there, but I will say it's underrated. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think Ar Arby's gets a bad rap. It, it's the meme it, it, it's using a lot of memes people make fun of it it's pretty good <laughs> beef and cheddar solid the curly fries are very good brady i feel like you know when this podcast really takes off and we get joel and ethan cohen to to join us when we review the big lebowski or something 
that's going to be our first question. Like the, the number one question burning in our minds is like, this movie took place in 1987. So is that why you used regular fries for Arby's? Was that a directorial choice? I think that I think that somebody needs to get to the bottom of it because that could be the great mystery of the movie, the, the true heart. <laughs> or is it was it like, no, we intentionally were it was another lie to show that the artifice that the, the clearly Do you these think were the we would prize. be the first people to ever ask that question to them. I think so. Ask them personally, perhaps now it'll be difficult <laughs> to get them together on a podcast. Yeah, now that they have they seem to have some sort of fissure. But <laughs> right, that, was a, that was a long detour, but I had to get I did discuss Arby's. I'm sorry. I think it makes sense because I think I love seeing fast food in movies. I don't like when you the, the the greatest cardinal sin you can do in a movie for me, other than not having a lot of extras in snow, is if there's a scene where somebody has clearly it's intended to be fast food and it's aluminum foil. Because no fast food restaurant in the history of mankind has gone straight. They, there's like the paper aluminum thing that's going on that some people have. Woo. But there's no oh, just cookout. straight aluminum foil. Cookout rocks aluminum foil. Sonic? No, there's a different. That's like a thin different with paper. There's like a paper involved in it. No, cookout definitely has aluminum foil. There, It is not the aluminum foil that you go to the grocery <laughs> store and you come back with. You can't convince me. You're just lying. You're telling, you're telling tales. That's I a different kind of thing. I thought you were going to say when they use a fake fast food restaurant, like American Beauty, I, I always struggle with. I'm like, this Mr. Smiley's, I'm like, come on, like, give me a give me something other than, than that. I don't know. I, th- I thought that was like the miss on that movie. But. Whack Arnold's. <laughs> I think no. If you, you see, if I see a, no yeah, let's, uh, so Marge, she uh, checks out the scene, checks out the cop. She's hanging out with, with Lou. Lou is like one of the worst detectives of all time, but he's an absolute legend. And also one of the funniest lines, I think. Uh, when they're checking out the scene, like what I think Marge does a really good job of here is you kind of see her figuring out what happened in this, but they make it believable. Like, I feel like it's not like, she's not like too quickly solving what's happening and she's explaining what she believes happened and she does nail it, but it shows like, in a very believable way that she is a very good detective and can kind of figure out what, what happened here. So I really like that. Um, Yeah. I think that one of the best things about the character is she's so, she's so non-threatening. The way she talks is hilarious. When she says, you know, we got to go pick up night crawlers. The guy's like, Oh, do you think like this guy's involved in the case? And she's like, no, I'm just wondering if his shop's open. Like, so I think that she totally kills it as a character. Yeah. Dave, you don't think he's mixed up in this, do you? <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I think it's clever. Yeah. Um, And then so after that, yeah, they have the RB scene. And then is, is this when things start going south a little bit? Because, oh, yeah. Buscemi calls up. Also, is it Buscemi or Buscemi? I'm saying Buscemi. Uh, she <laughs> what do you say? S-H. S-H? Yeah. yeah. Shem. So, I've always said Bushami. So, he calls up Jerry and he's like, blood has been shed. <laughs> we, we need to double, double edit that because at this point it hasn't been revealed yet that he's asking for a million dollars and he's saying we need to double the money. He's like, oh, no, you got to hear me out. Uh, th- This is I can't, I, I just can't do that, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, no, like you have to double the money. 
And then later we find out that he is asking money. So it's literally just barely coming out of his cut. And that just shows you how much of a piece of shit Jerry is. Like he's not even really troubled at all that people have been killed on this, on this point. And you also do get to see, I, we, we have, I had a few scenes where Buscemi and Stormare are just kind of like hanging out. Like they have, obviously they have the sex worker scene which is really interesting the way they shoot that. It's funny. And then they go to like some club with a crooner or just not even crooner. Who's the band? Isn't it? Um... It's Jose Feliciano. That's, yes! yeah. that's a great team. Jose Feliciano. You have no complaints. I love yes. Things. That's <laughs> such a great night. He's like, you get a guy like Feliciano. Dude, the question, I don't know. Like, did he write Feliz Navidad? I think he was the original writer and performer of Feliz Navidad. Maybe. You think that's a stat. I don't know. Is it he's, like he's doing a cover when they go to see him? He's singing somebody else's yeah. song. I think. Uh, first recorded in 1970. Yep, he recorded it. He uh, he freezed the first person to record it. There you go. So then we have the the the, the moment where he finally uh, Jerry goes to uh, Wade. And Stan to try to explain to them that uh the the we have like the details for the money swap. You gotta give me a million dollars. And then and Wade's like, well, what if I offer five hundred thousand? And he's like, We and Stan he's like, Oh, we can't they're not looking to negotiate. They sound real nervous. <laughs> and then, no way. <laughs> but it's Jerry. funny too, because Stan agrees with him every step until finally Wade says, Well, I'm the one gonna do the swap. And then Jerry's like, no, 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 couldn't. And then finally Stan's like, ah, it's it's his show. He's like, it's my show. I'm doing it. And then that, because that puts Jerry in that horrible scenario where the guys that he screwed over, they're going to realize that they were getting a lot more money. (laughs) And so then that puts it in an even like darker spot. So I'm glad that you guys pointed out. I mean, I must have missed the fact that it was a million because I really did think it was 80,000. And so I was like, all right, like maybe Buscemi will get the 80,000 and cut him in on the back end. But that really amplifies why he doesn't want anyone else dealing with these guys except for except for Jerry, because a million dollars is a lot different than 80K. Yeah. And then we so because we have the great moment where Carl. Carl is uh Buscemi, he's 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 with uh the girl from the Jose Feliciano concert and then Shep Proudfoot rolls in because he's got questioned because one of the call girls I I don't remember they they interview Shep Proudfoot does does Marge go to Shep Proudfoot first yeah she does yeah. Yeah. yeah, she 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 talks to him and he just he does like the strong silent routine he's like uh won't get answer any of her questions and he just shows up and just starts whipping the, sh- the shit out of Buscemi with his belt. Yeah. <laughs> it's like weirdly comes become sad at some point, even though you know like Buscemi's a horrible person, but it's like so visceral. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you Shep is like quiet like throughout the whole movie. He doesn't say a whole lot, and then all of a sudden, the wires get crossed, and and he is. Like, I mean, there's like an innocent bystander who's just saying, hey, quiet down. And he like beats him up, too. It's pretty that scene is like definitely, I think, a little like almost overdone. I'm like, did we need to beat up the guy in the hallway? <laughs> I think it's or, essential. I think it adds that girl. darkness. 
because there has, I think a lot of these people didn't understand the consequences. They're like, Oh, it's not a real crime. We're kidnapping somebody fake. Like it's like a fake kidnapping and we'll all get paid and no. And then once you step into that dark underworld, these are the people you're dealing with who like Sheppel's like, I would just put people into connection. Now I'm connected to three murders. You can understand where Shep's coming from where he's like, you guys completely fumbled this <laughs> like yeah. because all the phone calls are going to Shep. And there's like, I think they had, that's how they, they connected the dots a little bit. Um, but I thought, yeah, I think that's like the kind of scene where it goes into that darkness where it's not funny anymore and kind of harrowing. And I think that's kind of key to the movie almost in that tone where it's like really it's, it's, it's walking that line, but I think it works. Yeah. It walks that line very, very well for me from the, the pulling the them getting pulled over throughout the rest of the film i think it does a really great job and i think it's funny too because then, then it's establishing why because then they again they use this for comedic purposes where bushami just after the after this moment he just gets shit on for the rest of the movie <laughs> and he's just getting his shit rocked i like really? he finally it's interesting goes- i feel like throughout the movie like the what he turns into by the end of the movie, I feel like he wouldn't even be surprised by that cop getting killed, right? Like when that cop gets killed when they're during like right after the kidnapping, and he's like, Whoa, daddy. Like he he was like visibly shook by that. I think by the end of this movie, Buscemi would be like not acting that way. So like he's kind of turning into a more evil person throughout the movie. He's like becoming a monster along with them, yeah. Yeah. And then I think that's where this is where that intense scene comes where wade goes to make the swap and if i'm jerry you know jerry's just shitting bricks uh he goes to make the swap and then it becomes this argument where's my daughter because it makes sense this should have been the plan the whole time but again i think the everything turned south once everyone got killed i assume the original plan was obviously for jerry to receive his wife in that moment but because things have gone haywire they don't bring her because they've already, because we, I guess we didn't establish that they're hanging out in that cabin with her, and she just has a, a burlap sack in her head, and they have that great detail that it's so cold that you can see her breath inside the room, and the TV won't work, and Stormare is quietly going insane, it seemingly. <laughs> and then, so then they, she, he ends up shooting Wade, and then it has like that great visceral kind of where they shoot at each other, and Buscemi gets his a shot through the cheek. Where yeah. it just grazes his cheek and he's bleeding and he puts like all that paper against it, which is so gross. And you know it's going to be painful to peel off. So what do you think Jerry is doing after this? Because he seemingly doesn't report that Wade got killed. Because obviously the whole time he's saying we don't want to bring the cops involved for obvious, obvious reasons. But then he's it's seeming like he's carrying on. He's going to work. Like <laughs> like because uh, Marge finds him at work sitting yeah. behind the desk. Yeah. I don't know. That That's a good question. I think part of this, too, that stuck with me this time when I watched it is like Jerry didn't really fight back with Wade at all when Wade was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give this money. And Jerry's like, oh, OK, fine. So like part of this movie, too, I think is like Jerry has this inability to stand up for himself. He He's not a serious person, essentially, in this movie. And I feel like it bites him there because he's like, even though it's his wife, he can't convince Wade that like, no, I'm making this deal. They want me to make this deal. He was too scared to do that. So it's like, I think at this point he's lost. He's like, this is turning into a disaster and he doesn't know where to go. I think he understands that there's no way I'm going to convince 
Wade to let me go because he knows the way like the way Wade views me. There's no way I could ever talk him into it. He's not going to trust me with a million dollars to go into this dangerous yeah. scenario if his daughter's life's on the line. So but I, I think also like the reason we don't even realize that all that's happened, you know, like because I always do find myself thinking, what is Jerry doing during this point? Because the movie smartly, I think, shifts to Marge at this point, and then it becomes Marge's movie. Wait, because he becomes sidelined basically for the rest of the movie. Yeah, and don't well, don't forget when Riley Ethenbach keeps calling about the the GMAC forms where he scratched out the the letters to the license plate or whatever. It's so yeah, good. It's so good. Quick, I'll just have it. I'll fax that right over. No, the fax didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I mean, I'll send it right over. I'll send it right over. So here's a. Do you know? the guy who plays riley Ethenbach, what uh, like what other movies he's in mm-hmm. this is a bit of a, a shock i guess so he's also he's the guy who runs the mortuary and the big lebowski with uh <laughs> this is our most modestly priced urns <laughs> and then a uh, serious man he's actually the guy who's calling from the columbia record company dick dutton oh, so like he, he kills it in all three of these roles he's like that like i don't know you only hear him on the phone in A Serious Man and in Fargo, but he's awesome in it. That's awesome. So then from there, that's what, yeah, Marge takes over. And I think we have that, we have the great scene with. Well, we haven't talked about the Mikey Anagita scene. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, Mikey Anagita. Yeah. yeah. Um, She gets, so what do you guys think she was, I've seen people debate this. I never viewed it as her trying to get into a romantic entanglement. But I see some people think that she went in there because like, oh, she put on makeup. She went, you know, she spruced up. I didn't because obviously he calls her. He said, I saw you on the news. Um, do you want to meet up because you're going to be in the Twin Cities? Um, do you guys think that she was thinking about cheating or was she just meeting up with somebody? Because my thing is, if I'm meeting up with anyone from high school, I'm going to do my hair up, if you will. Anybody the, the like I'm not I'm not I'm going to dress like decently you know anytime you see somebody from way back when you want to put on the presentation that you're not a complete uh bozo which maybe maybe that's a comment on myself i think she just wanted a nice reasonably priced lunch at the radisson (laughs) (laughs) i love that dude imagine like in today's world where you have all these trendy restaurants and and stuff and you know i feel like eating at places is just different. Like in, you know, 88, going to the Radisson to eat downtown was probably like a, such a treat. And it's like, do you know a good place to eat downtown? And she's like, well, the Radisson's pretty good. Like, it's just, oh, I love it so But then much. she does drop the like, is it reasonable? Yeah. Like, that's a great line. So good. No, Brady, that's a great question though, because I have thought about that. She is the most done up throughout this movie during that scene. She's asking a good place to go to eat. She's like clearly a little bit like nervous about it in a way. She's like asking for advice on on where to meet Mikey Anagita. I don't. Marge is just too good though. Like I'm like I just I refuse to believe that she would do that and and be interested in a romantic entanglement. I think it's like kind of almost like maybe they were an old flame. Maybe he kind of rejected her in the past, and she wants to show that she's like you know on the come up a little bit. I guess it's like a little self-esteem boost, but I, yeah, I just, I just couldn't imagine. I mean, she's also like nine months pregnant. So <laughs> that would be a wild, she's seven months pregnant. She's showing a lot for seven months. It would be like, yeah, I just don't see her doing that, but I think she, she just wanted to feel good about herself a little bit. Maybe, I mean, there's something to be said that he's giving her attention, but she quickly does point out, I think she just, 
the moment he crosses the table and sits next to her and she immediately shuts it down, she realizes, oh, he's interested in romance. And she's like, ah, I didn't think. It. So that's when I think she like didn't even want to give that impression at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what you just said is, is the way I view it is she just wanted to maybe feel good about herself a little bit. Um, I don't I think know. It's fun to just catch up with old people you haven't seen you know, in a long time. It's a, yeah. kind of like a blast from the past, you know, wax nostalgic. Mikey um, and Vita, he calls it 1130. He's like, I saw you on the TV there. And then they go and meet. It's so good. She's like, what time is it? Do you think he was sauced up when he called her at 1130? <laughs> 100%. In his parents' basement? <laughs> yeah. I, well, I Here's a question. How old do you think Marge and Stan, sorry, Marge and Norm are supposed to be? I feel like I get the vibe that Norm's slightly older. Well, no, he said that he only, I think she, he's like two years older in school. I feel like they're supposed to be our age. People just looked a little older back oh, then. Oh, I see what you're saying. Is it their first kid? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he like was 30, born in 57. He, so, she, so Francis McDormand was born in 57. So she was, okay, she was about 40. Credit to her, I thought she was like playing like early 30s. She looked good. Yeah. She looked good. I just assumed like um, John Carroll Lynch, who's always great. He obviously iconic in Zodiac. He doesn't um, age. He looks like the same. And I just assumed, yeah, he, he was. See, he's six. He's see, he's younger than her. He's six years younger than her. So he was like thirty. That honestly, I was playing off his age. I was like, he looks like he'd be like thirty three or something. And that's exactly how old he is. Um, so but, John, John, when you saw this scene with Mikey and Agita, did you have a? Did you leave that scene asking yourself like, what was the point of that? Yeah. 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 I I never got that. I always like not even from like now I understand the purpose of the scene. I just never it just never popped up to me as a weird scene because I thought it was so effective. Maybe it's just because that reveal when she's like, oh yeah, he he never made she's alive. You should call her. Like that that reveal. (laughs) I I was like that that alone, even though obviously it connects thematically to the movie, but that that just whole thing alone, alone was like, oh wow, that was an interesting scene in that sense. Yeah, that scene. It took me. I, it took me a while. Sorry, that scene. I definitely didn't know really what to process when I watched this last night. Um, didn't really know why I was in there, but I'm gonna get to that when we do our rankings later. So I don't want to step on that too much. So, but yeah, I was very confused. Yeah, I like. It took me a few times to see it, and then I started to realize, like, oh, it's it's the deception thing going on here. I think where it's like this guy, she doesn't realize it takes this for her to re- Cause when she first goes to interview Jerry, she accepts, he takes him out of his word. She's like, have you noticed anything weird about any missing cars? And he says, no, everything's accounted for. And then, so she just leaves and takes him out of his word. Then she has the date yeah. air quotes around date. And then that's when she goes back is because she realizes people are capable of lying. So it works for actually as far as the plot goes, it is relevant to the plot. But I just like for some reason I think I'm maybe not the most astute viewer. It just never clicked up. It never, it never <laughs> felt false for me. I was always like, oh, that, that was always a really interesting scene. And I love that guy's performance. And that guy's great. He's um, he is good. He because he's in uh, do the right thing. Uh, I think he's in. He's in a serious man. Yeah, and I think he. Yeah, and I think he's in the new uh, Wes Anderson movie Asteroid City. If. Oh yeah. Uh, I think I think I saw him on like Instagram. He was doing his letterbox top four, um, if I'm correct. But yeah, I think the 
the scene really i think it's like obviously essential to the movie from like from that element point but then i think that leads to that great moment with this is basically our last moment with jerry outside that final kind of yeah with him where she like goes and actually presses him for the first time and he finally gets angry and like stands up for himself but he's like a total bozo <laughs> and he's like well she's like well how would you know that unless does somebody check to make sure there's no cars missing from the lot and he's like i'm the top salesman i know everything <laughs> yeah she's like what do you do weekly like monthly and he's like what you want me to go count right now i'll go count right now yeah you darn tootin i'll do a lot check right now <laughs> yeah so and good and also like, that guy's name is uh, steve Parker. he's fleeing the interview he's fleeing the interview that that, that whole business is so good because you just see him like jogging off and she's like she can't do anything and she's like what yeah. <laughs> It plays. It it's plays sad so well. too. She like looks over and sees the the photo of his wife on his desk, and she kind of smiles. She's like, "Oh, he must be like a loving guy." But she's definitely a little, um, I guess, suspicious of him at this point too. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um. So then, yeah. So Mike Yanagita is played by Steve Park. So shout out to him. Don't worry. About um. So at that point. The loudmouth at the bar gives them the tip that there's guys hanging out at the lake. Yeah, I was I always miss that, and I'm always confused why she's driving out there. That, yeah, because I'm always I always feel like I like miss that moment because I'm always like why I always like lock back into the movie and I'm like why is she driving right 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 to where they are? Yeah, but the, you have but before that you have that great moment where he sit he where Buscemi comes in there with a paper on his cheek and the blood soaked into it and he's like. um I got here's the forty thousand. So he clearly, well, I, honest, actually, we missed the most iconic part. He takes the money, he has the million dollars, and he buries it in the snow, and he marks it with the um the ice scraper, which even the even that, I'm like, you're gonna lose that. <laughs> there's the, the, the vastness. There's no GPS back then. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're not dropping a pin. <laughs> that that, it's that like Siberia too, where the ice does like it eventually melts and like you know, yeah. I that like if it's or even like a if if there like a heavy snow happened you're losing that marker you're well, gonna have they, to just they establish right before that that there's a huge cold front coming in that night so you know it's dumping like three feet yeah I would have yeah. like here's my thing is just would have hit it in a different spot I would have hit it near the uh, cabin probably like I'm like on the way out I would have just dropped like buried it next to the pot to the to the mailbox at the cabin. And when I left in the Sierra, I would have picked it up and grabbed it and rolled out. But it doesn't guys, matter because he never gets to look for it anyways. <laughs> well, this is important to talk about, I guess. You guys you guys have seen like the the story that a woman went and looked for the money because she thought the movie was true. Have you guys seen that? No. I saw that. Yeah, I saw the Wikipedia pages. And yeah. Yeah. So it's not this didn't actually happen. I guess this woman, she came in from Japan, I think. Um, I yeah. could be wrong on that. But she flew over. She tried to find this money and then she passed away like wandering in the wilderness in Fargo or in Brainerd or one of the two. Um, they made a documentary about this, but then like a year later, they're like, actually, none of this is true. It was like the police person who found this woman who passed away wrote up that she was trying to find the money from Fargo. But like the reality is he was just kind of making up a story, I guess. And she, there, there was actually, she wasn't looking for the money, but they made, they literally made a documentary about this fabricated story. That's nuts. It's kind of wild. 
and I, I don't know, I'm not saying like in the movie should should have him marrying about the mailbox. It's a perfect thing. It's like a, visually, it's perfect. You just see snow forever. I love that he looks left and right, and it's just infinite snow. And that's he when he decides to mark it. He might be thinking, falls. "I'm gonna go drop this forty thousand off, and then I'm gonna take the Tan Sierra and go drive it back to where I was and get the money." That's probably what he's thinking. For he, sure. Yeah, I think he's thinking. Yeah, he. It's probably just a quit. It's it clearly he didn't put that much thought into it because it's gonna be like, "Oh, I'm and two hours from now, I'll be right back." Yeah. Um. But he goes in there. And another interesting choice by the Coens, they don't show this because I think maybe that would have been too dark. She's already dead when he gets back. It, yeah, that's that's always a tough one for me. It makes me like really upset that she died, you know? She's it, like it, well, it feels like no country where they have the ending of that, a big moment happens off screen. It's like a similar kind of thing they do here. Yeah. I'm not saying I wanted her to die or I wanted to see the death. I'm just saying I wish she didn't die. I wish this, I would, wish sad. they could have rescued poor Jeannie. Well, then they have like that great, to speak of the, the Scotty of it all, they had that scene where Jerry has to tell Scotty that his like mother has been kidnapped and they're like, and he's so sad. And it's clear that Jerry never thought about his son once when he came up with this plan, what didn't even like register with him, which is like further underlines how he is like that newspaper you said he is the villain of the film even though like he's not killing anybody and he's like, like so like pathetic like worst dad of all time worst husband of all time you know um, so they close the door to his room do you see the poster he has on the back of that door what was it yeah. again i remember I, I did have a moment where i where i like i, I was like oh that's sick yeah it's like i don't even know it's like a scandinavian or like irish like guy like with like a harp or something it's yeah like a, it was super strange um like I, I remember watching that last night i did appreciate that behind his bedpost he had a white snake poster yeah that's sick so um one interesting thing so like we haven't talked about the music in this movie the same song plays throughout and like they they use it and it goes like forte gets louder and louder for a really time. good score when shep is like beating up buscemi it's like really loud and in your face but that song, I guess, is like a Scandinavian folk song that's like the sheep lost its way home or something. It's called something like that. And then Carter Burwell, who does like all the Coen Brothers uh, music, he like kind of jazzed it up and changed it a little bit. But I was listening today, like I was, I was listening to the the soundtrack for Fargo is just that song, really, because it's the only song throughout the whole movie. But I, I looked it up and I'd, I'd have to Google it, but... I looked up the name of the folk song it was written after, and that was on Spotify, and it's really cool. It it's like sounds just like it, same melody and everything. It's pretty fascinating that he found like the Scandinavian folk song to be like the, the kind of like the driving behind this movie. Yeah, I think I think that like that that that's an element that definitely elevates the movie that deserves a shout out. Um, but now it's funny because th this is probably when you're saying there's no twist. I feel like this is probably the biggest twist in the movie is Buscemi has the argument where he says, here's your 40, I get the Tan Sierra. <laughs> and then Stormare's like, nah, you pay me for the Sierra. And he's like, covered in blood. He's like, I got shot. I'm getting, <laughs> you get the, because he's also, he's like, he's not offering anything. He says, you get the van or whatever, or the truck. There's another car there. So he's not like leaving him stranded. I get it. And then he said, are we square? And Stormare just doesn't say anything. <laughs> are we square? Then he leaves. 
and then just from behind he comes with an axe and just murders him. Gives me yeah. just like, what? Give me give me flashbacks to two of our favorite movies where um the fact that Buscemi just keeps getting beat up and beat up and just showing up places was very Danny McBride in um Pineapple Express. And uh Are We Square? Are We Square gave me big um Sandler that's that vibes from uh Punch Drunk Love. <laughs> that's that. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, that 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 was such a shocking moment. And then so then we have that. Then are you so John, when you're watching this, um, and Marge shows up, do you think Marge is gonna did you think she was gonna die maybe there? Bad idea. Yeah, no, terrible idea. Marge is, as we already said, seven months pregnant, no backup, going against a guy who's we've seen kill a cop, a couple teenagers, and his partner. He's literally shredding his partner in a wood chipper. And this, I would- love that effect. I don't know, just that rubber leg that what that whatever they used, where he's just shoving it down, and he right. and she's There's yelling so like, "Police is the police!" And he doesn't hear. He's he doesn't like, hear. But then, like, I feel like it was very anti our guy to not, like, stand and fight a little bit. He didn't have a gun on him. He just starts running over the the frozen lake. And, I mean, great shot by Marge to get him in the leg there. But I thought the most improbable thing of the entire movie was that seven months pregnant Marge could drag this six-foot-five 280 guy off a lake and he's just wounded. He's not dead. Like she had to cuff him. He's not fighting back. I thought for sure she was gonna fall into the lake. They were gonna fall in. You think that's so ridiculous? What was that look? I've no, never, no I've never thought of that. I don't think for a moment they're gonna fall through the lake because that would have been the wildest ending. <laughs> if they just killed, they both got killed and they they disappeared in the lake, never to be yeah. seen. <laughs> it's like one of the greatest movies of all time, and then that's how it ends uh i think yeah well this is when they do the great the cinematography where it's like all white and then maybe they just dissolve to white and then she's driving him in the back of the car and she's like kind of dressing him down like a mother and she she has that great line like oh he's like and it's a beautiful day i love that line and that's what's so good is like if this was any other movie or if they had a male cop with a lot of bravado and machismo, he'd be like, how dare you, you motherfucker. Like you pulled this shit in my town, blah, blah, blah. And she's just like, you did this for money. Like, you know, three people dead just for money. Money's not the end of the world. You you know, you, you blew a beautiful day. Just, she's so sweet while she's delivering it, but it's cutting him so deep. It's awesome. Yeah, so it's so well done. I think she just can't put her like she can't even wrap her mind around it because she's like, why would you choose to live this way? Because it's also like the, the beautiful day is like the most most people would say that is not a hospitable day, <laughs> just yeah. like the like the snowstorm. <laughs> but it's also like she's right; it is beautiful because nothing looks better on on film than snow. <laughs> but um, but then we have Jerry Dude. attempting to uh, escape. And again, it almost feels if, if if it makes me it reminds me of No Country for All Men. I don't know why the vibe of it all. Just maybe because it takes place in a motel where they're like, "This is him," and they knock on the door, and he's like, just a minute. Oh, the, 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 he says that was a great choice. The choice not to open with us inside the room with him 
there's we're a, outside the room. There's a very subtlety to this. When they first knock on the door, they, I think he's using a fake name, right? He is. Um, I think they say yeah. Mr. Anderson. They say, yeah, they say his name and he goes, who? <laughs> funny, man. I, like, it gets me every time. It's such a serious scene. And the way he says, who? <laughs> like, and it's so good. They kick down the door. He's trying to escape in his underwear, his whitey tighties, obviously. Dude, it's and most, he... like, scumbag, like, scoundrel capture ever. He's, like, and he's a big baby. He's screaming like a child. Yeah, yeah. And even though, like, he doesn't yeah. even, he, he thinks he's the victim in all this, which is crazy. Yeah. Everything that's happened is his fault. And it's just, it just, it, it just puts everything in perspective. Like, this is the re, this man caused all of this. For what? Again, it's like, for what? Because at the end of the day, Scotty and Jeannie were going to be taken care of. But yeah. he only cares about himself. Exactly. He's a really selfish person. And then we go full circle. We're hanging out with um, Marge and Norm in bed. And he mentions that he got, uh, is he third place or second place? He got the second three place. cent stamp. The three cent stamp. For, the, for his mallard. My mallard. And then she does the whole, oh, he's like, nobody uses the three cent Oh yeah, they do Norm. When the when the when the price of the stamps go up, everyone buys it. And then just that small smile on his face where he has that, yeah, everybody does do that. It's the sweetest yeah. thing to end the movie on such a movie about like the darkness and the depravity of man to end on that the sweetest possible note. You're is... mallard? It's so good. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love it. He, he ice fishes, he paints mallards, he cooks breakfast for his wife. The guy's just like, Norm Son of a Gunderson is just living the dream. It's literally the all-time husband versus the worst husband. <laughs> just showing yeah. up at work with Arby's. Yeah. <laughs> and the wife's picking him up Nightcrawlers, man. It's like, they're such a great couple. Probably the best is when the guy's interviewing the guy who's shoveling his uh, driveway when you're talking about oh yeah because everyone has the great line about Buscemi oh he's kind of funny looking <laughs> and, and, but he's just like they're in just way. like yeah. oh the weather like a cold front's coming in <laughs> and then, I was tending bar funny well it, the, the question the whole time is always funny looking in what way like oh, oh. in a general kind of way well he wasn't he wasn't circumcised oh <laughs> Well, it's it's so good because like, how do you describe what Steve Buscemi looks like? Like that's it's perfect. Yeah, it's just funny looking in a general kind of way. No, no offense, Buscemi, I mean, you're an absolute legend. Literally yeah. one of the greatest. Like any anything he's in, he makes he elevates, and just is, I love anything he's in. Is this his best performance? Ooh. Give me uh, two seconds, Brady. You take this first. Uh, I, th- I I'd almost lean towards Mr. Pink and Reservoir Dogs because I feel like that's him doing this kind of role. This that's the first time he really does that thing. I think he's doing a similar thing. I know he did he did movies before that, but that's like that. I feel like he's going just full bozo, and he gets more screen time too. So I'm like, that's usually where I lock in with him the most probably but i mean this is definitely up there this is on his rush more along with um uh mr deeds <laughs> I, I thought you were gonna go with billy madison definitely yeah. uh big daddy as well but um what about a little shout out to armageddon rock out oh, right in armageddon that's a good call he's great Dude, armageddon. both these guys are are in armageddon both great the back- con air yeah, Peter, Peter Stormar, the uh, I guess he's the Russian cosmonaut from the highest again. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So Brady, are we ready for the? Oh, so yeah, the um, double feature. I actually put it. I had a lot of difficulty choosing this one. So I'll I'll start off with a little prelude. If you're looking for a movie from the period that has the most similar vibes and has snow, I go with A Simple Plan, which was directed by Sam Raimi, who wrote screenplays with the Coen brothers early in the career. They helped him on Evil Dead, his first movie back in the day. Um, Billy Bob Thornton, who's a Coen brothers guy, Bill Paxton. But I'm not, that's not the double feature I'm choosing because it's too obvious. It's a great, I have a genre that I love. It's just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, it gets worse where somebody makes one small decision and then the dominoes fall. That's a perfect dominoes one. And then I was, I was thinking I I was leaning toward noir because this is in the noir camp. People point to this as one of the great neo-noirs um, instead of darkness. It uses like, you know, light and stuff like that. Um, and I, I was between two. I was actually between three noir classic noirs. First one was the postman always rings twice 1946 not the jack nicholson one which is dope with bob rafelson directed but that's a good one because it has to do with someone getting their husband killed a woman seduces her husband but then i was leading towards detour that's one directed by edward Ed, edgar g ulmer that's a great one where in the beginning of the movie a guy he's a he gets picked up he's a hitchhiker and the guy driving the car like dies of a heart attack while he's sleeping and he's like, everyone's going to assume I murdered the guy. So I'm just going to take his clothes, his money in his car and head to L.A. And because of that one decision, things go nuts. But the ultimate one I decided on is maybe it's obvious, double indemnity. Maybe someday we can do an episode. Billy Wilder's classic. Um, the simple, simple uh, concept, 1944. It's a woman seduces a man and she says, Basically, let's kill my husband and we'll take the insurance because he's an insurance agent. We'll kill my husband and we'll get the insurance money for it. And that's like the opening. The movie begins with him um, narrating the events. He's like, this is what happened. And I think it's the perfect example. It's definitely some. It's definitely a big influence on the Coen brothers, not just this movie, like all their movies. Double Indemnity is an essential, essential watch regardless. Um, top 10 noir of all time, I would say. And I think the themes of it, you know, dealing with getting like using your spouse to try to get get money. I think it's definitely kind of like a predecessor to this. And I so the double feature officially after listening to all those is double indemnity worthy of an, uh, its own episode at some point. Maybe someday we'll get there. Awesome. Yeah, definitely going to check those ones out. And so now. Do you also want to introduce our scoring structure for the new listeners? Okay, so the way we score movies are it's not the goat, one of the goats, or the goat. The way I personally do it is a four-star movie is a goat, a three-and-a-half-star movie is one of the goats. Anything below that is not the goat. So that's not to say... If you give somebody a not the goat, still could be a great movie. I consider a three-star movie a really solid movie. But that's just the way we do it here. All right. I'll take it away then. Um, I'm gonna go one of the goats, which means three and a half out of four for your boy. Uh this movie, maybe more than any other movie I've seen, 
I feel like I need to rewatch and rewatch and rewatch. And maybe that's just a staple of the Coen brothers. Like Lebowski was the same way where I almost want to give a caveat to this ranking that if you let me rewatch it five times over the next eight months, I would give it the goat. I'm predicting that. But first watch, I'm going to give it one of the goats. I feel like there's so much that I may have missed the first runaround. And I don't know. I really enjoyed it. So smart. So well done. So well acted. No one cuts better than the Coen brothers. And yeah, I, I'm I'm just, I'm excited to watch it again because I know I'll like it even more. Brady. All right. I'm going to go up. I'm giving this the goat. And I'm saying it's the goat uh, movie based on a true story in which the names of the survivors have been changed out of respect for the dead. And then the rest of the story has been told exactly as it occurred. And I think this movie stands, I think it is, well, I say it's a, like, you know, air quotes trailblazer in the sense that you can tell like every crime movie that's come after it to some extent, like, especially if there's any dark comedy pinnings to it, it springs from this, the seed of this plant created a forest. And I think that I definitely ended up find myself rewatching it. It's funny. It's extremely dark. There's like a lot of layers and complexity to it that maybe a lot of the other movies, there's some other entertain, entertaining movies that do great things, but I think this is like, it's a full meal. Um, and just honestly, I could almost give it the go character names because there's not a bad character name in this. Every Everything's perfect. And I think that alone is something to be said. And obviously... I had all the things I had on my Mount Rushmore score. Okay. didn't have Pacino that we lose that, but all you need is two out of four. And it had, didn't have a lot of extras. So what are we, what are we left with snow and uh, no, 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 no athletic scenes. So maybe it only had one of my Rushmore's, and, but that's all that you need if it's that good. And I think this movie, it stands the test of time. There's a reason a TV show is made off of it. I have mixed feelings about the TV show. Some of it works, some of it doesn't. But the fact that the cultural impact of this movie still persists to this day is a testament to the Coen brothers. And I feel like the rest of their movies after this really have a connection to it in some way, thematically, you know. And I think the best of what they do is really encompass in this movie. Brian, your pick, I think we know where you're going with it, but take us home. Yeah, uh, this movie is the goat. Um, I would say it is it is the goat black comedy, dark comedy. I think it's the best ever. Um, obviously, I'm a big Coen Brothers fan. Um, I <laughs> the crazy thing is I'm, I'm saying it's the goat, and it may not even be my favorite Coen Brothers movie. Um, but John, to your point earlier, like you watch a Coen Brothers movie the first time, you might not fully get it. And it's because of the dialogue and there's so many subtleties to these movies that make it absolutely brilliant. Um, Fargo is no exception to that. Like you watch it a 30th time and you see something new that you've never thought about, or you hear like a, a little wisecracker joke that you've never heard before, like in the movie. And I just love that. I feel like I remember like watching burn after reading another Coen brothers movie for the first time. And I was like, I don't know if I got that. And now I watch that movie like three times a year because I think it's so funny. But that's just like, I feel like no director 
directors plural like do that the way the Coens do and I feel like this movie also influenced so many dark comedies that came after it I feel like Martin McDonough like he's pretty popular I feel like I mean I don't know if he's directly said that the Coen brothers influenced him but I watched like three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri and I'm like this feels so much like a Coen brothers movie to me it feels like Fargo to me so I do feel like this movie really kind of defined um, a genre in a way and kind of changed the way that we consider dark comedy over the last 20, 30 years now. I guess the other thing I would say that is worth considering is that I almost said that this was the best movie of the 90s. I can't make up my mind. I think it it might be. I don't know. When did Boy Break come out? <laughs> yeah. And Lebowski. Yeah, I know there's a lot, obviously. And then you think about like Jurassic Park and movies like that that also kind of defined the 90s. It's it's hard to say. Like, I feel like the GOAT movie of the 90s is different than just like the best movie. Like it, like it has to like encapsulate that time period well, I think. And I think Fargo does that, uh, even though it feels kind of old school and it's from the 80s, I guess. But technically, just like to me, it feels like such a classic 90s movie. And like, like I said before, I think the social impact that this movie had, like, the way people talked about it, like they'd never heard of somebody getting pushed into a wood, wood chipper, which is disgusting and awful. But like people would see this movie and then they'd go talk to their friends about it. Like, you got to hear these accents. You got to hear this about this guy who gets pushed into a wood chipper, which is terrible. But uh, I don't know. I just feel like it really set the tone in a way. And it, it, it's such an iconic movie. And my guy, Roger Ebert, um, if you look at his top movies in the 90s, I think he has Fargo as number two. Uh, I need to double check that, but he has it very high up there. I know Hoop Dreams, I think, is his number one movie of the 90s, yeah. uh, which is interesting. But um, yeah, I love this movie, obviously. So that's my uh, that's my rating. It's definitely the goat. Raj Ebert, what a hoop head. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up McDonough because a lot of what I was thinking when I was processing this movie was how I saw the blueprint laid out for like an In Bruges or a Seven Psychopaths movies that are a little terrifying, but I find hilarious. Um, yeah. And so, you know, Brady, your turn, Bo. Episode nine. What do the people have for homework? And I get, well, officially, I got, I got, I got Ebert's rankings right here. He put Fargo number four. Surprisingly, he doesn't have heat on this list um <laughs> that's kind of heartbreaking in its way but it's a pretty solid list it's actually you look it up on youtube it's uh him and scorsese are the one the, he's his guest and they break down their top 10 it's a great video oh yeah goodfellas um, is definitely i think goodfellas is number two for him yeah yeah, yeah goodfellas is number two and yeah who, no no sorry pulp fiction's number two goodfellas is three ah okay i got fargo over all of those but that's just me uh, have to think about it um so you know it's that time of the year summer summer blockbusters are hidden and that includes indiana jones and the dial of destiny no we are not covering that movie but we're going to go a little back in the time machine we're going to cover raiders of the lost ark we're going back to the spielberg uh well but i'm excited to discuss this movie because few movies are as ingrained in my dna as the indiana jones movies um, I consider doing Temple of Doom. We'll definitely touch on Temple of Doom during this episode because uh, there's a lot to touch on. But I think it's uh, 
there's a lot of food for thought. We're going to have a lot to discuss. It's a, it's a great moment in time. And uh, it's a great, it's an interesting time for movies. I think in 1981, it was a shift in Hollywood, but, and people say it's the end of the new Hollywood era, but you know what? I'm getting ahead of ourselves. We can, uh, I'll just say it'll be a fun time with the movies. I'm very excited just for some context for people. I, uh, when I moved uh, from Greenville, uh, I was thrown an Indiana Jones theme party because everyone knows my bit is that whenever we have a theme party, I dress up as Indiana Jones, regardless of the theme. Hilarious. I know what a clever bit, but that's why I'm so excited to discuss about this movie. Maybe my favorite uh, franchise or mm, character at the least. Uh, of all time so excited to discuss it with you guys and hear and hear your guys takes get ready to see your face get melted like you're watching hendrix at woodstock 69 mm-hmm. i just want right. to say yeah you watch it look out for the iconography i think people really underrate iconography and standing people the fact that they're still making movies until today that's crazy all right. Well, everybody, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Movie Goat Podcast. If you don't already, please download, rate, subscribe, follow us on social, Movie Goat Pod, Twitter, Instagram for Brian, Brady. This is John signing off. Thank you. We appreciate you. And. Bye.